Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career. For your family. For your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University. One of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. We literally made a circle around you on the street and took your pants off, took the G-string off, which you flung into traffic, okay? And you continued on the evening with your cooch completely visible through the chiffon pants. It was a wonderful, wonderful memory that I have of you, okay? Thank you. And when you have, you know, when your cooch is younger and fresh. <laughs> yes, when you have fresh, young cooch. <laughs> This is Hello, Isaac, my podcast about the idea of success and how failure affects it. I'm Isaac Mizrahi, and in this episode, I am so excited. I talked to literally one of the dearest friends I've ever had, and I think one of the great comedy geniuses of the world, the great Sandra Bernhardt. Hello, Isaac. It's Sandy Bernhardt. I can't wait to talk to you. You are my darling, and we'll talk soon. Love you, baby. Darlings, this is a real landmark for the Hello, Isaac podcast, because I'm about to speak to one of my best friends on the planet Earth, who I have a long history with, Sandra Bernhard. We are dear, dear, loving, loving friends. And one thing I don't want this to become is a kind of like a reverie. I don't want to just walk down memory lane. I also want to talk to her since this podcast is supposed to be a lot about success and failure. I want to talk to her about our friendship, which I'm not necessarily categorizing it as a failure, but I definitely think that our relationship hit a roadblock. When you think that we dined out 
and that we saw each other and went on vacations together and traveled around. And then suddenly there was something that happened and I'm not exactly sure what, but you know, our relationship kind of underwent a great kind of standstill. It was almost like a roadblock that we hit, you know, as, as dear, dear friends. And though I know we still love each other, I just want to discuss that and see exactly what she thinks happened. So uh, I'm a little excited and I'm a little scared. I'm both those things and I'm eager to get started. So let's go. Hi. Hi, Sandra. Hi. I was starting to tell you I had to leave the city because they're replacing our elevator, which was a long time in our building. So we're going up and down five flights of stairs. You know, four or five times. Oh, a God. Day. So no, we're, okay. like, we're taking these extended breaks. It's going to take three right. months to do this project. Oh, Lord, darling. Especially no, in the I'm hottest gonna... time of the year. It's so gross. It's life. And you know what? I've learned one thing, Isaac, all the years I've known you. What's that? To not bitch and complain about stupid shit. Except that bitching and complaining makes it a little better, doesn't it? No. Just a little tiny bit better? No. No, it helps me. You know what? It helps me. I'm solution based. Well, here's my solution to everything therapy. Spend money. (laughs) No, well, spend money, but also therapy, darling. If you talk to someone every week and they have to listen to you, they're paid to listen to you and not say that much, that solves a lot of my problems. I feel so much better after I talk about it. I really do. I'm glad you, I know you've always prescribed to that. I'm just the opposite. I do a lot of internal like examination. I think things through. I I flare up. I deal with my stress. I release it. To me, talking to somebody is the most unrelenting, boring thing in the entire world, especially somebody who I don't know. I don't know what they really think. Well, I don't of course you don't know them until you, know. you do. You know, you get to know a therapist, darling. I prefer because it's I not am that, internal it's not too. That I've never done therapy. I've been in therapy, but it was for specific shit like about my parents Mm-mm. when I was in my twenties. I'm not telling you not to do it. For me, it's just another thing I don't want to deal with. I don't think it's right to do it for specific things. I just think as an ongoing facet in your life, it's great to have like a third party that has absolutely nothing invested in it listening to you. It's just a great thing for me. And it's not boring. And I am extremely internalized. And all I do is think and post. I'm not not saying, I'm not, this isn't. I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to fight with you, Sandra. You You should talk about it. I think you should talk (laughs) about it with your therapist. Wait a minute. Do you know that Arnold and I, one of the great things that we have between us is when we're kind of edging into a fight, one of us goes, I don't want to fight with you. And then it's so ridiculously funny when someone says that, that it just devolves into laughter, darling, laughter, laughter, laughter. Uh Hey, listen, Sandra, um, I want to talk about us, okay? Because we've known each other for a minute, honey. We know each other since the 20th century. That's a very long time. And I have incredible memories of you. And I don't want to spend too much time like kind of talking about that, but it is good to kind of give a historical base to the children. A context. A context, exactly. What is your favorite memory of us? Do you have one? 
I have so many favorite memories, but one of the memories I, that I cherish is when I would come visit you at your atelier. Right. And you would have four or five cigarettes burning at once and you're at in different <laughs> and just walk around smoking and putting them back down and let them burn. And we would dance to Black Box. That's right. Everybody, everybody. That's on my list, too, of favorite memories, I have to say. You know, I mean, it's just, it was the casual, intimate nature of our friendship that meant so much to me that I could stop by when you were in the middle of working mm-hmm. and designing and finishing your different seasons. And you were never like, like, oh, God, I can't talk to you now. Somehow it would make you... I guess it made you feel better that I stopped by. I don't know. I mean, of course. And it was and then, a break. And, oh my God, a break from the hideous monotony of all that. You know? <laughs> and then also, <laughs> I loved coming and shopping and getting clothes and like wearing almost exclusively your clothes in yes. every, every context of my life, whether it was going on David Letterman or whether I was oh. doing an opening or, you know, promoting my shows or wearing your stuff on stage. I mean, yeah. From your Payette, you know, sequined short tank dresses, which became a staple in my closet, mm-hmm. which were so beautiful. And I was so skinny then. I didn't even need to wear anything. I mean, maybe I wore a G string, but right. I didn't need to wear a bra. And, you know, I wore a, like one of your sling back. What were those little shoes? Like, like no. kitten heel. I want to say like pilgrim, pilgrim. Pilgrim mules, the mules. Pilgrim. The mules, the mules. Pilgrim so, mules, darling. So. Wait a minute. Speaking of G-strings, I have a memory of you. I don't know if you remember this, but we went to dinner somewhere in Chelsea. And then we were headed to like a gala. And it was me and you and like Cheryl and that insanely nice makeup artist that you had, that young man. I forgot his name. He's probably not that young. Steven. And we were all walking in the street and you were having like a G-string crisis. This was early in the G-string technology. You may not remember this, but you were... We're wearing wait, some wait. kind of like chiffon. Cozy, cozy bellow. <laughs> wait a minute, cozy bellow. That was the the manufacturer of those of those little. They were like floss. They were like floss in your crack. Right, floss in your crack. But wait a minute. Now here's the thing. You were wearing a chiffon suit. Like I had made this like chiffon suit with like a tailor jacket and chiffon pants and a thong to cover up whatever you needed to cover up. But you were like, you know what? I can't with this cozy bellow. I can't with this butt floss. And we literally made a circle around you on the street and took your pants off, took the g-string off, which you flung into traffic. Okay, and you continued on the evening with your cooch completely visible through the chiffon pants it was a wonderful wonderful memory that i have of you okay thank you and when you have you know when your cooch is younger and (laughs) yes when you have fresh young cooch actually you know what i gotta tell you those days darling at the royalton not to sound like some you know decrepit old queen but they were some days at the royalton right darling some days Beyond, beyond description with like Madonna and Elizabeth Saltzman ordering food from Mr. Chow. You and I, darling, we went out to dinner at least and to some club or some party or some whatever gala or something literally every night. Do you remember this? For something like two or three years, like we were literally out every damn night together. Yeah. Yeah. And not just in New York, in Chicago, in Paris, in places like we were around in London, in Londres. 
to say it in French. And when did we stop? Do you remember when we stopped going out every single night? Well, I mean, it was probably around the time I got pregnant, I guess. Oh, even though, wait, stop, because I was doing my show. I performed while I was pregnant at the West Bath. And also continued to go out almost every single night. Right. So, And then I went back to L.A., gave birth to Cicely, my daughter. Right. Maybe fact, that's what it was. Maybe it was about Cicely. I have fabulous pictures of you and me dancing opening night on Broadway of I'm Still Here, Damn mm-hmm, It, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. was amazing. Amazing. So I continued to go out even once I had Cicely. But then when I met Sarah, my, my, right. uh, my lady of now 24 years, my lady. My lady. I guess my lady. We go out, but I guess things just shifted, you know, as right. they do when you have a kid and you're maybe in a little more like grounded relationship than I'd ever been in. Mm-hmm. Right. Things just shift and it's like attrition. Things just happen. And to be perfectly honest with you, I tell myself like, you know, did I say something? Did she say something? Did I forget something? Am I missing something? Did we fail as friends? Because this podcast is a lot about failure. I mean, we did have a, we did have a glitch in our friendship. We did, right? What was it about? Do you remember? Because you screamed at me. Because I said something about a model in your show. I'm not going to mention her name because she's a wonderful person. I really like her. And I wasn't trashing her. I just said she looked a little horsey in one of the looks. And you went fucking ballistic on me. I was trying to walk out the door to go do a shoot for the cover of my album, um, Excuses for Bad Behavior. And you brought me to tears. And I was totally yeah, bereft and freaked out. You tore me to shreds. You're kidding. When was that? Oh. When was it? 1994? Okay. Five. I don't remember that at all. Well, I mean, maybe because you just like blew your stack at me. And you yeah, got, exactly. Maybe exactly, you're exactly, the same exactly. person, like a lot of people who blow their stack and don't think that that's a big deal. By the way, I love the expression, blow your stack. That is so my father. I guess from our generation, you know, my father and growing up is like, yes, you know, I'm going to blow my stack. But anyway, I don't consider this failure. I consider no, it no, a no, moment no, I don't either. friendship that was sort of eye-opening for me and really hurt me. And I was really, really stunned. And it also brought me into that realm of when men scream at women. And <gasps> I am so fucking over it. I've spent a lifetime being screamed at by my father, by different men who have been like my managers or, you know, people in my business. And it's like, I'm so fucking over it. It's like being pummeled, abused. It's misogynistic. I'm not saying you're being misogynistic, but there's something about men. I don't care, gay, straight, or in between. Where men think they can scream at women. And you know what? I will never let it happen again. Wait, okay. So can women scream at men? No. Is that okay with you? No, nobody should scream at anybody. I find it a little bit weirdly sexualizing to say that men scream at women. That is a little general. But when they do, it's because they are entitled. They, they have a sense of entitlement because they're men and they still believe, most men, that they are in the control. Right. But I seat. don't. I would never, ever think that. And I would never, ever generalize that, you know? And the fact that I don't remember it 
like really hurts that I don't remember when it was this sort of traumatic thing in your life that kind of set you back to well, such an extent. Yeah, I'm surprised because you were really, really, really like, like your head was like. Do you think that's where it started to kind of diminish? I felt differently about you. I was trepidatious. I was more like, you know, uh, uncertain about things I felt I could just say without, you know, some sort of a big, huge reaction. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But that's an outstanding moment that to this day has always sort of stuck with me. And I always felt like, why didn't I just tell Isaac in the moment that I did, but I should have given it a couple of days and called you back and said, what the fuck was that? Right. Or I should have reached out and said, gosh, that was a moment. I don't do that. I'm so sorry. And what was it about? Just to parse it through. Right. To move through it, to move through it. Um, well, listen, before I say another word, darling, I would like to apologize to you that I hurt you in that way. Thank you. I mean it. Can I please do that before I say the next thing? Yes, you can. Okay. Well, there you go. Okay, let's go a little bit into the history of you. Because what I really want to know, and I might know the answer to this, but I want you to put it into your words. Like, why did you go into show business? And why did you go into comedy? Is there a reason you think? Yeah, I, I honestly believe I was born to do it. Because when I was five years old, my dad was a doctor. His partner, Melt Rosenbaum's wife, Marlene Rosenbaum, Mm -hmm. never cooked <laughs> and she was boiling water i don't know what she was going to do with the water but she goes what do you want to be when you grow up i was four or five years old i said a comedian and she laughed <sighs> and i said no i will be i will be and she laughed again i was already like performing and entertaining right family my three older brothers i was already in that mindset it wasn't wasn't like one day i decided i was going to do it it was in my consciousness from day one and speaking of the family dynamic and the brothers who are all amazing, who I love, and they're all so hot. I don't know if they're still hot. They're probably like much older now because I haven't seen them in 20 years, but they were always really, really hot. But do you think that being this girl among these boys, do you think that kind of added to your ability to kind of, I don't know, be funny or something? Because I always think that people get to be funny by practicing. Like you start being funny at a young age and you practice and practice and practice in some context. Do you think it was that? I think that I had a built-in audience. Right. And ah. I loved it. My, my oldest brother, Dan, played guitar and he sang folk songs. So I would sit and sing with him. Right, right. Um, right. My brother, David, was he was the most excited about having a baby sister. He was enthralled by me. Mm -hmm. My brother Mark, youngest in age, I love Mark. furious because he had been the youngest and the baby. Right. And, and that really was going to be it until the happy surprise of Sandy came along. <laughs> and he was like ready to fucking, you know, kill me. Right. And, and then my dad, of course, because he had had three boys and he was not, he didn't like men. Men were a threat to him because mm. he's such a narcissist. Um, he was thrilled because he had finally had a baby girl. My mother, according to Jeanette. my Jeanette told one of my brothers, I think my brother, David, 
that she had homicidal thoughts about killing me and my dad when I was born. Wow. You and think I, that was like early postpartum depression or something? What do you yeah. think that was? Yeah. And I don't blame her. She had three little boys. She was a sensitive soul. Jeanette was a sensitive she soul. She was an introvert. She was a true artist. I think had she been born in the next generation, she would never have gotten married. I think she would have just gone off and done her mm-hmm. art and you know lived her monastic lifestyle. I don't, <laughs> she cared about sex. I don't think she liked being somebody's wife. I don't think she really loved being a mother. She was pushed into it by my grandmother who nabbed my father when he was in Jackson, Michigan, where my mom was from when he was doing his medical internship. And mm-hmm. he was something on the scene, like a young single Jewish doctor. So my right. grandmother nabbed him for my mom. In those days, you could not escape. Oh. You had to marry. You had to have children. It was a must-do thing, especially for a Jewish woman. But darling, going back to this idea of you as a performer, first of all, I think you're so great at so many things. I think you're an incredible writer. I think you're an incredible singer. I think you're a great actor. I think you're a great comedian. But what do you think of yourself as? I think of myself as an entertainer. Because I feel like, like, you know, all of those things are incorporated in what I do. The writing, Mm -hmm. the singing, the acting, the performing. And yes, I do. I go off and, you know, in different spokes of the wheel, like when I actually, you know, do a role as an actor. But when I'm on stage, I feel like I bring all those elements together because I write my shows and I'm very musical. And I feel like I help arrange a lot of the songs with Mitch Kaplan, my musical director. I control all the levers. Of course you do. But wait a second. Now, getting back to who you are, you're talking about yourself as an entertainer. And I also think of you as a commentator, right? Like you comment a lot about the scene. But the thing is, Sandra, like, you know, today when you see people who comment on stuff, you know, it's kind of like an affectation or it's like in air quotes, you know, it comes up (laughs) in their work. It's vetted. And in your case, it's something that is so like ingrained in the person you are, in the writer, in the musician, in the performer, in the entertainer. You know what I mean? Talk about that. Talk about politics for a minute and not so much the specifics of being a Democrat and being a liberal or whatever, but talk about how you think, why did that become such an important thing to you as a performer? Because I grew up in a time that was very, very explosive. You know, the Vietnam era, the feminist era, the, um, of course, racial issues at a time when being Jewish was, you know, it's still not easy for any of us. It feels like it's getting worse to be these things, darling. It feels like it's getting worse. It is, but I was, you know, little when, when John Kennedy was president. So I was like, right away, I was already very taken by the Kennedy mystique. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved John Kennedy. I loved all the stories. I adored Jackie, the children. Right. I just loved the civility, the sophistication, you know, the, yeah. the sort of high wasp beauty of the whole of experience. It was uh, like of the first time America really had, you know, Talking about quotes, royalty. Also, the youth of it. We always had such old, ugly presidents, and he was rather gorgeous and young and glamorous, and so was she. Yeah. And so America felt really like we were like gearing up for something great. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, I was in third grade 
when the news came that he had been assassinated mm-hmm. and we all went home and spent the weekend just being like traumatized. I mean, to watch, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald being shot live on TV in grainy black and white, you know, it's like, we forget that nobody had ever experienced anything like that before. Really? You know, right. um, I think he was, sh- when was he shot in like 1963 or something or 64? Yeah, 63. 63. I wasn't yet cognizant. I was already born, but I was literally a baby, baby, like in the yeah. cradle. But I do remember it was the first time I ever saw my mother cry. Like yeah. she was destroyed. And I remember even at two, however old I was, or three, I do remember that one moment of feeling fear because my mother was crying. Yeah. It was a devastating thing. Well, I was eight years old and I was very aware and I see it all very clearly. I mean, I remember being in my third grade class and our teacher and all my friends, we had to run home. It always felt like I had to run home to escape things, you know, assassinations, tornadoes. A flock of birds attacking you. and Snowstorms. (laughs) Exactly. It was just like, when I was little, it was like, for some reason, I was always walking home alone. I would no sooner let Cicely walk down the stairs by her. Oh, God. Darling, darling, darling. But in our generation, you know, maybe my mother walked me to the corner and then waved goodbye. I was like, well, I hope I see you again. Oh, I know. Exactly. Oh, so it was honestly neglectful. I think they were neglectful. But going back to you and having politics kind of poured into you, into your DNA and what it comes out like on stage and in your performances. And I've noticed sometimes it gets you into some trouble sometimes. You know, yeah. or it used to get you into some trouble sometimes. I don't know about it anymore. Well, there's certain there's certain things that I don't do anymore. I mean, I had carte blanche to talk about the black experience because of my friendship with Paul Mooney, who was right. my, my mentor. Right, right, and, right. You know, he went everywhere with me when I started out. And mm-hmm. you know, he got me on the Richard Pryor show and he introduced right. me to black audiences. Mm-hmm. And so back then I was able to say things. As in the parlance that I would say to Mooney, but then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it was like you couldn't do that anymore, and I was no. like, "Oh shit! Oh my God! Mooney's not here. Right? Um, the world has changed, so I'm not allowed to be a filter of the black experience anymore mm-hmm. in the way right. I was. Right? I mean, I know so many black performers and and audience members love me because yes. they didn't have a thing about it, but no. because it's gotten so twisted in between true racism. And people who are, you know, super, super allies, between allies. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. Okay, that's cool. It's not my story to tell. It's my story right. to defend and celebrate, but it's not my story. Yes. To tell. Right. So right. that makes it very different now. And so I think once in a while I've said something and people jump on it, but it's usually not somebody black, it's somebody who's like trying to stir the shit, you know? Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. 
But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. One of my favorite things in the world about you is your kind of like sticky situation with the LGBTQ community. Like sometimes they love you so much and you just open them up. And then other times, my favorite thing in the world, I was actually, uh, you know, this person, Alok, they're a comedian, they're queer and they're wonderful. And I was at this party and they were talking about how difficult it is to navigate the queer community. And, 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 and sometimes they're really for them and other times they really challenge them and blah, blah. <laughs> I said, darling, you have not lived <laughs> until you were Sandra Bernhardt on a gay cruise, right? In 19, whatever that was, like 89 or 92 or something like that. Booked as the entertainment on that boat and actually being thrown off the boat for something you said. Like how incredibly punk rock and amazing is that? Sandra, come on. There was a dinghy okay, that came to the boat to get you, you off that, the boat. Let me explain to you something that's so fascinating. I think it's changed, but at that point, so many of the gay men were from like these smaller towns 
And they right. still, they, even though they were gay, they still had a provincial sensibility about that. Yes, yeah. About yeah, yeah. what they liked in entertainment and food and clothing. Mm-hmm. So it, the fact that they were gay didn't elevate their sophistication in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So when I started saying oh, we were on a ship of fools, right, <laughs> right, I just hate. That's I what it hate was. The, those those ships are so grotesque. Well, a ship, darling. You lost me at ship. Unless you're on, like, you know, Barry Diller and Dion von Furstenberg's yacht. Or the love boat. Or the love boat. We went on a Passover cruise when I was about, like, 12 years old or 13 years what old. I was, it was darling on the Queen Elizabeth II, so oh that my mother my wouldn't God. have to darling, so that my mother wouldn't have to kosher the house, and I was seasick the entire entire uh, time. Okay, did you, but go, anyway. did you go to London? No, honey, we went to like Saint Lucia and you know the Bahamas on the QE too. Yes, I'm telling you, it was a Passover cruise, and. I was so sick the whole time, so I didn't do anything. This is before everything. There was a movie theater that had three movies, okay? I sat through those fucking three movies like about tw- 25 times each. This is insane. It's insane. Wait a minute. So, so, But I do want to talk to you about you as a spokesperson for the LGBTQ community and where you are in that whole thing today. Is it an important facet of who you are and who you are in the public eye? It's only important to me that people are completely supported and loved and can be exactly who they are in that realm. I don't need that support. I've never needed mm-hmm. to define right. myself like that. Right. I've never had any issues about my sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never been how I've defined myself, but I am absolutely fiercely at people's, you know, um, beck and call to get the love and support they need. How do you define yourself? You are bisexual, right, Sandra? That's how I know you. I, 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 mean, I say bisexual only because I fantasize about having sex with men sometimes, mm-hmm. not as much anymore because I've been with Sarah for so long. We're together and that's, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean? It's like, I find certain men super sexy and, you know, I like men. I don't even think about it really. Like, I'm not aggressively gay, you know? Yes, I do know. Are you aggressively sexual anymore? Yeah, I think in certain ways. Yay. Hooray. Good for you. With Sarah, obviously. Do you have an open relationship? No, we do not have an open relationship. That is nothing but source. I agree. For us, for me and you. But for others, it's it's a way of life. I mean, I don't condemn it. I don't condone it. What that means is you have security with the person you're with. But then you're allowed to run yes. around and have sex and be. Yes, yes, people can do it. They can do it. I mean, when me and Arnold talk about being monogamous, we go like, you know, <laughs> you know, yes, we are, right? And then I go, yeah, that's maybe one day I would just, and then I try or I look around or someone approaches and I'm like, no, my husband's like way sexier. It's too fabulous. I'm, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to rock the LGBTQ cruise or the dinghy that took you off the cruise. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm glad to know that like you still, because I too, I feel like a sexy entity still. I still feel sexy. Yeah, I mean, of course. Especially good. when I'm like performing and I'm going out and getting my hair and makeup done. And yeah, you know, I, yes. get, I slide yes. into different, you know, modes. Speaking of modes, you are a mother, one of the most adorable, fascinating young women, Sicily, right? Yes. 
And you're also the daughter of a fascinating, I think, fascinating, who I really liked. You know, I really liked your mother. She was, she was great. She was just great. I think you loved my mother too. You loved Sarah I a loved lot. Sarah. Right? Yeah, you love Sarah. But anyway, talk to me about that. Were there lessons that Jeanette taught you as a daughter that you then applied to Sicily? I feel like I'm bookended by two women who are a little bit of stubborn. Well, my mother was hugely stubborn. Cicely is stubborn, but I think it's a good thing because she's of this generation now that if you don't have a little stubbornness, if you don't have a, a yes. way to like process what the world is doing, you'll fall apart. So she's strong. I feel like on both ends, it's like I'm more of the giver, more of the lover, right. more of, the, of the tender person. You know, Cicely's a lot more like my mom. She's an artist. She's more of an introvert. and so it skipped a generation because that's kind of what my mom was. She was a visual artist, a painter, a sculptor. And Cicely is, you know, she's in the art adjacent world. Right. Um, darling, can we just call it generational? Because I swear I feel the same way that you do. I don't have a kid, but I do have a mother. My mother was a kind of a narcissist. She was a narcissist who kept it in check. And it was always about her. And sometimes I think to myself, like, that was the only reason I was there, was to kind of amuse her, you know? And I felt that way about that generation. I don't think I'm a boomer. I was born in 1961. And when I was born, I wasn't considered a boomer. Somehow they shifted the dates and now I'm considered a boomer. But I don't have that whole boomer thing about me, right? But there was my mom's generation. And then there are the kids in the world who also feel like they can express themselves really easily and ask for what they want and get what they want, like Sicily, right? Like she can ask for what she wants and she will a lot of times get what she wants. Whereas like we, that kind of in-between generation, we felt a little weird asking for what we wanted. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, also my mom wasn't always emotionally available when I was little. Mm -hmm. Right. She had a lot of, you know, stuff happening going yes. on mentally. Mm -hmm. um, and I shored her up and I had to like, just really dig, deep into my own tiny little bank of resources right and become like a super strong person which is why i kind of like can deal with almost anything now but i'm at the point where i don't want to it's innervating it's just too much i want yeah. to be with people in situations where it's just easier than it's yes, been along right. the way mm -hmm. i understand that but it's part of like aging a little bit, right? You age and you go, you know what? Maybe I don't need all the drama. I don't need all this ridiculous surus. And you just go like, yeah, I just like being with easy people. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about you when you were starting your career, right? Did you have a plan? Did you have a plan for the whole thing? Like, I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to audition. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do stand up, And then I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to do that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't. And the only thing I knew that I was going to do when I moved to LA was go, go to beauty school and become a manicurist. Oh, come on. Well, I know that's true, but that has to be a huge surprise for a lot of people listening to this podcast. Well, because I had to have a job to support myself because my right. parents were not going to support me. Right. You but know? you know what? Listen, when I was growing up, I also had to get the hell out of my house because, you know, it was a very religious thing. It wasn't good. And I knew that if I was a designer and I could work in a design room or something, it'd be a lot easier than what I really wanted to do, which was 
be a performer, you know? And I was too scared of that. So I went and I got a job. You know, I went to Parsons, but it was part of my plan to do that, to get into the design world, get into that, do it, you know, sort of make a place myself and then branch out into show business. And you're saying you just thought, I just want to be a beautician. No, no. I I knew that was the only concrete plan I had in terms of like, once I landed in LA, what I was going to do. I see. Before I started becoming a performer, I didn't know what the jumping off place or the end. I see. Okay. I met up with a bunch of friends, you know, some people my age. I met this woman named Judy Valen. Her parents were like in, you know, cabaret burlesque performers. Incredible. She left her family back in Ohio. Her kids and husband came back to LA and she was performing, singing, you know, songs her mother wrote at um, this open mic night at the Ye Little Club. And I had a party one night and I got up and did my little rudimentary five minutes of material. I, w- I didn't know what it was. I was just entertaining my friends at the party. She goes, you got to come and do open mic night. So she took me there. She'd already told Paul Mooney about me. Right. When I got up that first night, he was there and my friend Lotus Weinstock, my two, you know, angels. And they took me under their wings. Yes. And that's where I jumped in. I didn't know that it would be in the stand-up comedy world. I always thought I was going to go to New York and do Broadway musicals because I love, I love Carol Channing and I love Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the last thing I want to do now. I mean, just the monotony of doing the same show over and over again Mm -hmm. doesn't interest me and ended up not interesting me. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So that's how it all came together. It was very organic. I didn't have a formal plan. That's when I knew it was really meant to be because it just happened in such a natural way. And it just like took off from there. Is there a moment where you feel you had a setback in all of that? Like where you just failed? Like, did you miss something? Did you not get a job that you really wanted to get? Did you not get a part? I wasn't auditioning for anything at first. My first four years, I was just performing. Mm -hmm. And then I was on the Richard Pryor show and I did $1.98 beauty contest. And I I did Fernwood Tonight. I did all that little- The best show in the world. That little TV circuit where people would just get plugged in and you would do your little act in like this setting, right? Of people talking to you. And then I did a Cheech and Chong movie and I did this movie called House of God. It was based on some book about a hospital in Boston. So I I did all these little things and they were perfect little things to do that kind of got me, you know, the T set for the big swing into King of Comedy. Mm-hmm. Which so, was the breakthrough. That was the big breakthrough. Had I not gotten that, uh, maybe that would have been a setback. But because I did get mm-hmm. that, right. it changed the entire landscape of my life and my career. Right. What was that audition like? Did you audition? I auditioned, but, I, but my agent at the time didn't get me up for it. My friend Lucy Webb. Unbelievable. Who was comedy partners with Cheryl Henry, who you know. Yes. Um, she had gone up for it and she was totally wrong. And she called Sis Corman, the casting director, Got on, it. on my behalf. Wow. That is a beautiful thing. I went in and I read for her because they wanted somebody who could improvise. So mm-hmm. I did a little improvisation and thing for her. And she was like, I think you need to meet Marty. So the next day <laughs> I met Marty and Marty wow. and Bobby. And then they came to see me at the comedy store. And Richard Belzer got up and did like a little improv with me as if we were like amazing. the characters in King of Comedy. And then a month went by and then they flew me to New York and I did my last audition with Jerry Lewis. 
And then two days later, they called me in my hotel room at the Mayflower on Central Park West. It's not there anymore. And Sis Corman said, you got the job. Wow. That is an amazing scream. Oh, Sandra, I can't even bear it. And the rest is history. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. So you're looking back now. Are there any regrets? I hate the word regret, but it's a, it's a good word because it's descriptive. Do you regret something? Not really. I mean, there were a few things that I was offered that I could have done that I didn't do, but none of them to me are like standout, you know, performances by anybody else i was like damn it why the fuck didn't i do that Mm -hmm. you know um i feel like i could have had better representation at different points in my career right like when i was with sue mengers that was amazing and the gang over at william morse but then they all left and then sometimes i was sort of in the lurch you know right there was a quote that i pulled from somewhere from some of the research that said that you thought maybe if you were better at playing the game, you might have like made more money or something. You don't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's true. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I've always just been a little bit to myself, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. For me, looking back is difficult, but of course, like having you as a main guest on this podcast, 
I can't help looking back and I can't help asking you to look back because, you know, we've known each other for such a long time. But now talking about us together and knowing each other for such a long time and aging, is there a plan now? Do you have any plans? Oh, yeah, I have a lot of plans. I'm definitely going to keep performing live. Okay. It's a really important thing. Like we're at this age. I am 61. How old are you, darling? I know you don't care if we ask you that. You're 68. Okay. So we're approaching 70, which is a big number, right? And I feel like planning is a big, big, big thing at this age. I I just got fabulous new manager, this woman, Marnie, who I love. Wonderful. And she is, she's not young. She's probably 50 and she just loves me and gets me. and wants to make things happen. Of course, we're in the middle of a writer's strike and I know in the imminent, you know, actor strike as of tonight at midnight. And we should strike because yes. we've got to get what we need now or we will lose everything. This Good. is, where, Good I, will, statement, darling. This is Good where I will be political again. Mm-hmm. We must be unionized in this country. Unions were invented to protect workers from mm-hmm. injury from being maligned, attacked. (laughs) And by the way, people don't think of actors or writers as these creatures that need unionization, but they especially do, right? They especially do, yeah. Well, darling, um, the last question that I ask all of my people that I interview is, what would your obituary, what would the headline be? I can't do that. That's what you can't do it. You're not. Well, you know, our obituaries have already been written. That, that's, that. that's, that's something <laughs> that I will have nothing. I know. No, she's not doing it. Okay, darling. That's a good answer. God forbid. That's as good an answer as like, you know, she was amazing and she made everybody happy and, 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 and squirmy. <laughs> For a few years, right? Exactly. All right. Well, tell us what you want to plug. Okay. My show is called Spring Affair. I am at the Parkway Theater on August 19th in Minneapolis. I'll be at Oscars in Palm Springs October 12th. I think that's right. It's on my website. And then I'll be back at the Wallace Annenberg in Beverly Hills October 19th. Those are shows that are set in stone. I want them sold out. I want people to get <laughs> their out. My shows on the West Coast are called Lady of the Canyon. It's a tribute to LA and all the years that I would drive over Laurel Canyon to go back to the Valley and be so inspired by the music I was listening to and the energy of all the great people who lived in Laurel Canyon and wrote and performed. Sounds incredible. You can go to my website, sandrabernhard.com. And of course, if you're on Instagram or any of those kinds of platforms, you can do a LinkedIn bio. Okay. Love you. I love you. I love you. Forever. I mean it. Forever. Forever. Forever, darling. Forever. Of course we mean it. I mean, that's insane. Of course we love each other. Yes, we do. Very much. You mean so much to me. Me too, my dear. Okay. Choking up. All right. I'm not kidding. Wow. What an incredible conversation. What a beautiful resolution. What a burden has been lifted from my chest. I'm so glad that I got a chance to hear all that from Sandra. I'm really, really grateful that I got the chance to truly apologize for that moment. 
And in an ironic way, even though Sandra was talking about how she thinks therapy is questionable and she's a little bored with the thought, darlings, I think that that was a couples therapy session in the making right there. And I feel really grateful that you were with me. You all listened to that. Um, Somehow it made it even realer to me. Thank you. And, you know, on top of everything, I'm really, really looking forward to spending more time with Sandra, to having a more casual kind of friendship as we used to. That's exciting to me. Darlings, if you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and tell someone, tell a friend, tell your mother, tell your cousin, tell everyone you know, okay? And be sure to rate the show. I love rating stuff. Go on and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about it. It makes such a gigantic difference and like it takes a second. So go on and do it. And if you want more fun content, videos, and posts of all kinds, follow the show on Instagram and TikTok at Hello Isaac Podcast. And by the way, check me out on Instagram and TikTok at I am Isaac Mizrahi. This is Isaac Mizrahi. Thank you. I love you. And I never thought I'd say this, but goodbye, Isaac. Hello, Isaac is produced by Imagine Audio, Awfully Nice, and I Am Entertainment for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Isaac Mizrahi. Hello, Isaac is produced by Robin Gelfenbein. The senior producers are Jesse Burton and John Asante. It is executive produced by Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, and Nathan Clokey at Imagine Audio. Production management from Katie Hodges. Sound design and mixing by Cedric Wilson. Original music composed by Ben Walzer. A special thanks to Neil Phelps and Sarah Katanak at I Am Entertainment. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.